reading from Romans 14, 1 through 12, which is on page 948. It will also be on the screen. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems all days one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you that we don't need to be the ones to pass judgment on others because our judgment is almost always faulty. I pray that you will not even help that you will help us not even to think snide thoughts about our neighbors and people who are different than us. Thank you for uniting us in your love. Please open up our hearts and minds to receive what Pastor Kyle has to say to us this morning. Amen. Amen. Nice job, Malachi. You want to preach sometime, dude? <laughs> All right, please be seated. Good morning, church. My name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here. I met a few of you who are here for the first time, and welcome to Living Stones. Uh, it is an honor to have you take a part of your weekend to come here, and, and I know that you said you're just seeking and, and just checking things out, and that, this is a great place for you to be. And one thing you need to know about us as a church is we're a church that loves the Bible because we believe that God has revealed himself to us through the Bible. And so what we do at this church is we just walk through the Bible and we are in Romans 14 today. So if you uh, don't have a Bible, grab one of the ones around you. Uh, on those Bibles, it's on page 948. And we're gonna be turning our attention to Romans 14. In the city for the city, motivated, Bible preaching, culturally engaged, disciples making disciples, relationally present, active with our friends, welcoming to outsiders, liturgical, valuing the arts. These are all words that myself and a few of, uh, other of our leaders at Living Stones wrote down to describe our church at a leadership cohort we were at a few weeks ago. The assignment that was that each church was to break off into a small group and, and write down words that describe your church. And so we all did this. 
And those were the words that we came up with. They were very action-oriented words. When we came around the table as uh, the nine churches represented, about 15 people, they had us go around and say every one of our words. And then at the end, the leader sat back in silence and he said very gently to us, how come none of you said the word love? He said, didn't Jesus say in John 13, the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another? Not one church said the word love. And he even said that he's been doing this cohort for two years, meeting with different churches, uh, nine churches every month, and not one of them has ever said the word love. And he said, my fear is that as a church, we've adopted more what the culture thinks is success than what Jesus thinks is success. Love is what Jesus calls us to. But love is difficult, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Because the question is, is how do we love each other when we're so different? Look around the room. How do we love each other when, let's be honest, If it wasn't for Jesus, we probably wouldn't be hanging out together. How do we love each other when we have such varying opinions on important matters that divide all sorts of culture, but yet God has called us to this one place where we're supposed to love one another? How do we do it? How do we do it when we have so many differences? Paul's answer to that in Romans 14 is simple but challenging. His answer is this, that love seeks union in spite of opinions. Love seeks union in spite of opinions. And what I want to do today as we walk through these verses is I want to talk about the setting of what's going on because some strange things are mentioned. And then I want to talk about the problems that are going on. And then I want to talk about the solution that Paul offers. So first of all, the setting. The setting is, is this is a church in Rome. And Paul is, is the Apostle Paul writing to this church. He's never been to the Roman church, but he knows a lot of the people. And he's heard about some of the conflict that is happening in the church. And verse 3 tells us that they are despising one another and passing judgment on each other. And so he writes to them this prescription. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. In a moment, I'll get to what they were arguing about, but the thing that you need to know is that they were dividing themselves against each other. They were wholly huddling. They were clicking up. They were uh, being divided in their little circles of like-minded people. That doesn't sound like church at all, does it? They were divided against each other because of their opinions. But before we dive into this, what I want to say is that this is a call to union. And a church on mission will always need a call to union. And here's what I mean by that. After Jesus died and resurrected, right before he ascended back up into heaven, he sent his disciples to do one thing. He said, I want you to go into the whole world and make disciples of all nations or all ethnicities. And then what he was saying was, he was saying that the mission of the church is to reach all different types of people. 
Now, when you reach all different types of people and you put them in the same room together and they're all messed up sinners, what happens? Conflict. They, they start to get at each other's throat and then they start to gang up on each other like, you know, like Lord of the Flies. <laughs> and so that's the church is, if a church is on mission, they're always gonna need a call to union because they're reaching the people that God has sent us to reach. And what's happening in this church is there's, there's different types of diversity going on in the church that's causing the conflict. So first of all, there's racial diversity that's causing this conflict. So the, the, the church in, in Rome was a church who had both Jewish uh, Christians, people of Jewish ethnicity, and then also Gentile Christians and also barbarian Christians. So the, the Greeks who were the Roman citizens, had no respect for the barbarians, and the Jews had no respect for the Greeks, and it was just this perfect mess of relationship. And what had happened is in AD 49, the emperor Claudius had kicked out all the Jews out of Rome because they were arguing about somebody named Crestus. Now, most scholars believe that they were arguing about who was Christ. And so to deal with it, he just kicked all the Jews out of uh, Rome, including the Jewish Christians. So when that happened in AD 49, the church was handed over to the Gentiles and the barbarians. And so four years later, the Jews were allowed back into Rome. So when they came back in, you can imagine the church looked a lot different. The music was different. The food they had at leader meetings was different. They were eating bacon because the Jews didn't eat bacon. But now all of a sudden, they were eating bacon at their leader meetings. Bless the Lord. <laughs> Bless the Lord. <laughs> they were... Uh, you know, the, the holy days that they celebrated throughout the year were different. How they lived their lives were different. How they dressed was different. And as you can imagine, this caused conflict because they were coming back and saying, wait, 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 wait. This is not how we do church. And it was causing separation. And it was much easier for them to separate with like-minded people. And Paul, Paul doesn't write them a prescription to separate with like-minded people. He writes them a prescription to be unified together in spite of opinion. Because that's what love does. Love seeks union in spite of opinions. Now, there's also the diversity of faith in here. In the verse verse, you'll notice he says, As for those who are weak in faith, welcome him. As he continues on through 14, he says there's some people who are weak in faith and some people who are strong in faith. Now, if we are a church that is on mission, you will have people who should be weak in the faith and then you'll have people who are more mature in the faith because you're seeing new people meet Jesus. And what happens in too many churches is they think that they just need to be a church of uh, just a bunch of mature people who stopped reaching new people. But if we're a church on mission, you're gonna have people on the whole spectrum of the range of faith. And so he calls them weak. Um, now, uh, maybe to help you understand weak, there, there's some people who were so bound by their conscience that they were less free than others. So the, think of the people who are weak as less free or a little bit more uptight about the things you could eat and couldn't eat or a little bit more uptight about what days you should celebrate or shouldn't celebrate. They were less free than the others. And so before we dive in, let's just acknowledge that the very existence of this text should challenge us as a church. Is this the church that we have? Is this the church that we long for? A church that has a diversity of many ethnicities. A church that 
has many different people on the range of spectrum of faith, seekers to full believers who have been believers, you know, for, for decades and decades and decades. Is this the church that we want? Or do we just want the church that makes us feel comfortable? And let's go beyond church. At this church, we do things called community groups where we gather on Sundays in a big group like this, but then we gather in smaller groups to talk about the Bible and how it applies to our daily life and to pray for one another and encourage one another. Those are community groups. Do we want this kind of diversity in our community groups? We say, yes, but how come I look at nearly all of our community groups and there are a bunch of mirrored images of ourselves? Why is that? It's just, it's just a heck of a lot more comfortable to be in a room full of people that get you, Right? But God has called us to something much bigger, much more beautiful. He says that's what makes the, 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 the movement of Jesus so unique, church, is the movement of Jesus, it's not just a bunch of certain types of people. It's, it's a whole mess of different types of people. It's a whole mosaic of people that he's bringing together. I was reading this last week in Isaiah 56. In Isaiah 56, God says, uh, my house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. And this week I heard a message from Pastor Harvey where he was speaking on that very thing that Jesus quotes, my house is a house of prayer for all peoples. This is what makes the movement of, of Christianity so unique. You know, early historians didn't know, they didn't have a category for Christians because they were like, well, you're not just Jews and you're not just Greeks. So they called them a third race. <laughs> Because they were this unique group of people that from all these different walks of life and all these different variations of, of faith and, and their journey with God, but yet they were all coming together as one family. So they were like, we don't have a category for this. You're just a third race. Church, do we want to be a third race in Sparks, Nevada? That's what we want to be. That's the challenge. And so I, I've read this, man, like feeling convicted because I was like, who are the people that I tend to invite over to my house? I'll tell you who it is. It, it's the people that I tend, are in the same age, same, same stage of life, who I get along with really well. And this passage challenges us. When's the last time you had somebody from a different race over to your house for dinner? When's the last time you had somebody from a different political party that is just, you totally disagree with, over for dinner? When's the last time that you went out to coffee with somebody, you know, two generations ahead of you or behind you. That's what this passage calls it to. Because love seeks union in spite of opinion. So it should challenge us. The very existence of this passage should challenge us. Now let's talk about the problem. What was going on in this church that, Paul, that warranted Paul writing this letter? Well, they were arguing about diet and holy days. Okay, let's look at verse one. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinion. One person believes he made anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Pause. Okay, carnivores. That is not saying, this isn't a dig against vegetarians where you're like, see, I told you so. Weak people eat only vegetables, okay? <laughs> we'll get that in a second. I'll explain what's going on. Then he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who who eats for God has welcomed him. Then he says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? 
It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another while another esteems all days of like. Each person should be fully convinced in his own mind. So what was going on is they were arguing about diet and holy days. Now, don't look at this and be like, that's silly. We would never do this as a church. (laughs) Separate over diet and holy days. We're so much better. First of all, it's a big deal. There's a practically and spiritually. Practically, diet and holy days are a big deal because what you eat and the days you celebrate are a big part of who you are as a person, are they not? I mean, that's what distinguishes us as different cultures. Um, Like, what I, I think you should eat certain things for breakfast. Like, I love to eat bacon and eggs. Every day I try to eat like three eggs for breakfast. A few years ago, I went over to India and they had like celery and carrots. And our host was so excited because they were like, he's like, the cook will make you pancakes. And then they put curry in the pancakes. (laughs) And I ate it going, this is a sin. (laughs) This is wrong. God is not pleased with this. I can't find bacon anywhere. What is happening? But you know, they would come over and say the same thing if they had our breakfast. Because what you eat is a big part of who you are. It's a big part of who you are. And then also think about holy days. Um, You know, those of you from another country, I know some of you have come here from another country. uh, And like I have a girl in my community group, she's from South Korea. They have different holidays than we do. And so throughout the year, she acknowledges those days and there's, there's different things that she celebrates that I don't even understand. And so what was going on in this church was this, is the, the main people who were uptight were the Jewish Christians because the Jewish Christians had grown up in a tradition where they were told that they, they couldn't eat certain foods and that they had to celebrate specific days. And so, for the, and then the Gentiles were Christians and they're like, no, God says you can eat all of it now, it's okay. Like they just couldn't let that go because it was so much a part of who they were as a person. So it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, Because what you eat shapes you, literally and figuratively. (laughs) Um, But there's also a spiritual thing going on here. Because the, the Jewish Christians who were uptight, the ones who were less free, were having trouble because in their scriptures, in the whole Old Testament, like through the book of Leviticus, God gives a bunch of commands about what you can eat and what you can eat, can't eat. Anybody read those and you're like, I have no idea why God is saying you can't eat shellfish. <laughs> or I have no idea why God says you can't eat pork. Or he just goes on and on and on. Um, here's what God was doing with those, with those laws. First of all, he was trying to give Israel a national identity so that they would be seen as a different people. They could have an identity different from the nations around them. And then second of all, he was saying this, if you eat these foods, you're clean. If you don't eat these foods, if you eat other foods, then you would become unclean. And in so doing, through their diet, he was drilling into their hearts their need to be cleansed if they want a relationship with God. So that every time they ate, they were reminded, we need cleansing of our sin. Now that is all a foreshadow. It's all a big arrow sign that points to the coming of Jesus, our Lord. Isn't it, church? 
in which he comes to us and he lives a perfect life on our behalf and then he dies a death on the cross for our sins. Our sins were laid on him so that by his stripes, we can be healed and cleansed from our sins. And then Jesus institutes a new meal, the Lord's Supper, communion, in which he says, the bread represents my body, the wine represents my blood, and by taking this, you're reminded that you are clean. Therefore, dietary laws are no longer necessary because they all pointed to Christ and he has satisfied our cleansing, amen? Amen. Amen. And so in the New Testament, we see God showing up and saying, hey, you guys, it's okay to eat other animals now. Which is why I eat pork every Easter because of the resurrection, I can eat pork. (laughs) So God does that. But here's the thing. Some of these Jewish Christians who are new to the faith, they just couldn't get there yet. That's why I say they were less free. Because they they couldn't explore the fullness of the freedoms they now had in Christ. Because the whole life, they had their mama and their papa saying, if you eat that food, you're not living a life pleasing to God. And now they're saying, well, wait, we can eat this food. And it's just, it was a violation against their conscience. And so that's why... Paul has to write this. So it's, it's not over silly things. And the same thing goes with uh, these observance of certain days, holy days. You should celebrate this holy day or that holy day. And so we might look at this and be like, man, you guys are silly. But church, is there anything like that like we separate on these days? I mean, I know our church pretty well and we're not separating over diet. We certainly aren't on that. And except for you gluten-free people are always trying to separate yourselves. But... <laughs> Really, we're not separating relationship over diet these days, but are there any other things in which we're looking and passing judgment on one another? I was brainstorming this with Pastor Gavin this week and we came up with a whole bunch of lists. Here's some of them. Can Christians smoke cigarettes? Um, Can Christians, should Christians drink alcohol or should they abstain from alcohol? Should Christians homeschool their kids or not homeschool their kids? Or should they put them in public school? Or should they put them in private school? Uh, If you have a baby, should you do baby-wise? Or do you need to do a more holistic medicine approach? Um, Is it okay to use chemicals as cleaning supplies in your house? Or should you use vinegar for everything? (laughs) There's separations like this happening... How should you dress when you go to church? Should you dress up to honor the Lord? Or is it okay to dress casual? casual? Can you wear a hat when you pray? What kind of music should you listen to? Do you have to listen to K-Love Christian music all the time? Can you listen to other music? Other than country? Can you listen to rap music? Or hardcore metal music? As a Christian, what freedoms do you have? Can you cuss as a Christian? Only some cuss words, but not all of them. (laughs) Which words are good and which words aren't? Can you do yoga as a Christian? (laughs) Or are you participating in worship of Hindu gods? Don't you see there's so many things that we pass judgment on each other based on our own opinions. We are no better than this silly church. We are no better than this silly church. So how do we deal with it? That's the problem. How do we deal with it? Well, the solution, Paul says, 
is this. Love seeks union in spite of opinion. Now, I want to look at this based on what he doesn't do. The first thing that Paul doesn't do is he doesn't take the politically correct approach, (laughs) which I thank him for that. Verse five, he says, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The politically correct approach says, you know what? You shouldn't really hold on to your opinions because in the end, everybody's right. Paul says, balderdash. He calls people weak in here. That's not politically correct. He takes a stance. And instead what he says, you need to be fully convinced in your own mind. It is good for you on all these periphery, uh, I just made that word up, outside matters, non-essential matters. (laughs) On all these non-essential matters, it is important for you to have an opinion because there's no aspect of your life that doesn't get presented to God as worship. Every part of your life is worship. So it's important. You need to fully be convinced in your own mind so that you can fully give yourself to your Lord. So you need to have an opinion. So that's not the politically correct approach. And that's what he goes on to say. He says, for if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So it's important for you to have a good understanding of what you believe on these non-essential doctrines, non-essential things, these things that the Bible may not speak directly towards so that you can live your life in full conscience, giving yourself to God as worship. And what this means for you is this, whatever your conscience says on an issue that the Bible doesn't speak directly towards, you are free in. You're free to honor the Lord. If it violates your conscience, don't do it. If you say, I can do this, and he gives us instruction, can you give thanks to God while you're doing this? If you can do it and give thanks to God, you're free to do it. If you can't do it and give thanks to God, you probably shouldn't do it because it's sin. So you're free to honor the Lord. So he doesn't take the politically correct stance and say you shouldn't have an opinion. The next thing he doesn't do, he doesn't go in the way of a social norm. Social norm says, okay, 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 you can believe what you want. You just have to show up on Sundays, greet each other for a little bit, and then go your separate ways and don't have life together. He doesn't do that. He's not like a teacher on the playground, right? Remember on the playground, you get in rough and tumble fighting with, they just say, okay, you guys have to be here in the same class. Just respect each other, tolerate each other's presence, but don't play together. And that way you'll avoid conflict. He doesn't do that. What's he do? Look at verse one. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. He says, welcome them. That word welcome, if you look it up in the original language, which is Greek, is more than just like, you know how we have welcomers at the door? Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? It's more than that. It means to seek someone out and invite them into your heart. Invite them to your dinner table. Invite them into your life. It's an active welcoming That's why love seeks union in spite of opinion. It's an active welcoming. So he doesn't say just avoid them and just hang out with 
like-minded people, birds of a feather flock together. He said, no, the church shouldn't do that. They should be seeking one another out regardless of their differences of opinion so that they can live in relationship together. And he gives us five reasons why. The first reason is found in verse three at the end of it. For God has welcomed him. We welcome others because God has welcomed us. In my house, there's these two little kids that live next door, Quentin and Xavier. They're cute little kids. They're friends with my children. They are welcome in my house anytime and they take full advantage of that. They will just be sitting there, you know, hanging out and they'll just run, they run into our house. They don't knock. They run into the house and they go straight to the pantry. And I love it. My wife and I prayed that we could have a home that would be a blessing to the kids in the neighborhood. And so we just made a commitment, like, we're going to have better snacks than all the other parents around <laughs> so that the kids can come in whenever they want. And they go straight in there, and I love it. Now, if you came to my house, you might think differently, but I would be highly offended if you kicked one of those kids out because it's not your house. And in the same way that Jesus said in Isaiah 56, prophesying, he said, my house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. And so when you separate yourselves from one another as a church and you think that you should only do things one way as a church, you're, you're distancing yourself from somebody that God has accepted and he takes high offense to that. Regardless of how different you are in opinions, God has welcomed them in. The next reason why we're to welcome is because we are not the ones who determines people's standing with God. Amen? Look at verse Four, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. You see, when you start despising other people and looking down at them, when you start passing judgment on them, you're acting like you're their boss. So you ain't their boss. Jesus is their master, not you. And he uses this word stand. The word stand means, will you able to be upheld in your faith? And what Paul is basically saying, look, stop walking around like it's you who helps lead people to salvation, not Jesus. Because what was happening is those who are more uptight, the ones who like, uh, they, they couldn't eat meat because... Uh, most of the meat in Rome was sacrificed to uh, different idols. And so they just said, okay, instead we're going to eat vegetables. They were judging those who ate meat. And they were saying, oh, you're going down a scary path. You're walking on thin lice. It's only a matter of time till you walk totally away from the Lord. And Paul says to him, man, it's not on you to make them stand or fall. The Lord is able to uphold them. He is the one who initiates salvation. He is the one who sustains salvation. And guess what? He's going to be the one who preserves salvation for his people. It's not on you. So don't try to correct him. And then what happened was, then there was the, uh, the free people. They were despising. They were despising the, the less free people. They were like, oh, that's really cute. You only eat vegetables. Like, you should be more mature than this right now. Like, who do you think you are? And Paul says, remember, you're not their master. When you despise somebody over that, you're not trusting that Jesus is a good master who will reveal their shortcomings when he's ready to reveal their shortcomings. And so when you try to despise people, you're trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit or of Jesus in their life, and you're not. 
So you need to allow Jesus to guide people along as he sees fit because he's a good master and he will uphold them in the end. The third reason why we're to welcome people into our lives and to seek union with them is because Jesus has died for them and resurrected for them to be their Lord. Look at those words that are used multiple times in the text. Despise and pass judgment. Church, when you look at each other and you despise and pass judgment on each other, what you're saying is that Jesus being despised and Jesus receiving the judgment wasn't enough for them, so you gotta heap it on some more. But he says, no, the Lord died for them already. He was despised and he was crucified naked for them already. He, he took the full judgment already. Why are you still trying to pass judgment on them? And he's also resurrected for them so they could have life. So would you just let them live their life to honor the Lord? Would you just let them honor God according to their conscience? They're not doing anything sinful. They're just trying to honor the Lord. Quit passing judgment. The fourth reason why we're to be welcoming these people who are very different than us is because they're our brothers. Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? We can't be passing judgment on each other as Christians because we're our brothers and sisters. Now listen, in this church, I've heard last year, especially with the craziness of the election, I heard... Republican Christians say, I don't know how you could be a Christian and a Democrat. And I heard also in this church, I don't know how, I have no respect for Christians who are Republicans. And like, they literally meant it, but don't you know, church family, that you're talking about your brothers and sisters? Your brothers and sisters. I know that it is said, um, you know, you can choose your friends, but you don't get to choose your family. It's the same way in the church. But there's something that we all, even if you come from an unhealthy, separated family, you long for this deep in your heart. Every family knows that they're united by blood, regardless of opinion. And in the same way as Christians, we could be all over the place in terms of what we think but we're united by blood. Would we start living like it, please? <laughs> um, you might be somebody who's not a Christian. You just, you're looking at the church kind of from the outside. You're like, I just don't understand why you guys all say you're on the same team, but you fight all the time. Yeah, it's, God's frustrated too, okay? <laughs> and so if you're not a Christian, know that that's not how it's supposed to be. We're called to something greater. We're called to something greater. And then the last reason that Paul gives here of why we're to welcome one another is because at the end of the day, we don't stand before each other as judge. We stand before Jesus as judge. Uh, verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So what he's saying is, when you are passing judgment and despising each other, what you're doing is you're trying to put yourself in the judgment seat of God. 
but you're not in the judgment seat of God and nor will you ever will be. Praise the Lord. And I will never be in the judgment seat of God. Only he gets to sit there, not us. It's like we try to treat ourselves like that goody tissues in, in class who always went around and helped the teacher out by giving people stars and then demerit marks. God doesn't need your help. He's got judgment. He's got the judgment thing covered. So therefore, you can relax a little bit and stop trying to judge one another. And you know the other thing? Is when you read that last line in verse 12, everybody read it. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. When you think about that truly and deeply, you really quickly get humble because you stop worrying about judging others and you start worrying about your own life. I'm gonna have to stand before God. Now to be sure, there's two judgment seats in the Bible in the New Testament. The great white throne of judgment and who stands before the great white throne is those who end up not putting their trust in Jesus and trusting that he's offered them grace. So those who reject God's grace and forgiveness, they stand before the great white judgment throne and, and Jesus will punish them for their sins. But Christians don't go to the great white judgment throne because they've been forgiven by the blood of the lamb. But you will stand before another judgment seat. This word here, when it says judgment seat, it's the word bima seat. It's a word that was used in, in the Greek Olympics where the judge, there was a bema seat, an elevated seat at the end of a race. And when racers finished the race, after they finished, they would walk over and stand in front of the bema seat to receive their reward. And so what Paul is saying here is every Christian, you're not gonna be condemned at the end of time. You're gonna stand before the bema seat, but you will give an account for your life and God will reward you accordingly. And that should terrify us a little bit in a good way. Like, it means we get to stop worrying about others if we want change, and we have to start with change in ourselves. Remember how Michael Jackson said it? I'm looking at the man in the mirror. Mm. I'm asking him to make a change. My favorite Michael Jackson song. Michael Jackson was picking up on a divine truth that if change were to happen, it starts with the man in the mirror. And when you are thinking about that we're all gonna have to give an account of himself to God, where does it start? With the man in the mirror. So stop judging others. Stop worrying about others. Um, now there's this other thing with the idea of welcoming them. How in the world are we to welcome these people all the way into our heart? you have to inconvenience yourself to make space for them. You have to be willing to set aside your rights. You have to be willing to set aside your opinions in order to embrace them in relationship. You have to set aside your prerogative. You have to be willing to lay down your life. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable. You have to be willing to disagree but still choose them anyways. Paul is only asking us to do this because this is exactly what our Lord Jesus has done for us, isn't it, church? I mean, think about it. He, he, did, he wasn't sitting up there in heaven saying, hey, Kyle, once you align your opinions with my heavenly opinions, then I'll come down for you. No, he did just the opposite. He made space for me even when I hated him. 
he laid down his rights even to the point of death so that I could be brought in. And same with you. He sought union in spite of the difference I had of opinion. And because of that, I know him. And you see, that's what love is. And that kind of love is contagious. That's why Jesus says the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. It's a contagious kind of love. You've ever been camping in a cold night and somebody's standing by the fire and you go off to do some other things and then you come back and you're cold, but those who've been standing by the fire, you hug one of your loved ones, what happens to them? They're all warm, but not with their own warmth, with the warmth from the fire. And what Paul is basically saying is this, is if you're struggling to give this kind of love to others, it's probably because you haven't warmed yourself by the love of God that he's given to you in Christ. Because when you love, when, when, you, when you orient yourself around the love that is offered to us in Christ, it immediately will start flowing to other people. It's contagious. You can't imagine living another way. And so this is a challenging text for us. But it's also comforting because God's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. Amen, church? Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful that you did love us like this and you do. You're patient with us. You're gentle with us and you allow us to have our differencing of opinion, but you still seek us. I pray, God, that you would make us this kind of diverse church a church of many races, a church of many ages, a church of many subgroups, a church of people who listen to many different types of music, a church of people who love to worship in many different ways, a church of people who have many different political opinions. Make us this kind of church for your glory because by this mosaic of your people, you receive praise. There is no movement like the movement of Jesus. And so God, we ask desperately that you would give us this gift. And forgive us for the ways that we have passed judgment on those you've already taken all the judgment. Forgive us for the ways that we've despised those that you were already despised for. And help us to have this kind of heart. Really help us make this stick into our hearts so that it's not just something we're warmed by here today, but it's something we live out in our life. Help us, we pray. Amen.